You're listening to Climate Champions, a podcast from the Architects Journal. I'm Hattie Hartman, Sustainability Editor at the Architects Journal. And I'm Hattie's co-host, George Morgan, Director of 1.5 Architecture. In this episode, we return to the subject of architectural education. Following Scott McCauley's scathing indictment of the slow pace of change in schools in episode 34, I'm keen to share some positive examples of the way forward. Today, we speak to two educators who are doing their utmost to overhaul architecture curricula to address climate emergency. Often in architecture, we think we can engineer our way out and design our way out of the system. And so we're working more and more now on values, basically to shift in values so that students know and teachers know how to make decisions. It's in a way even overthrowing, if you like, in inverted commas, our traditions, our culture, and also our intersubjective judgment of what good architecture is or what the role of the architect is or the role of architecture is in society. If we don't build, then what does architecture mean? What does it mean us as architects? As our first guest today, we welcome back Sophie Pelsmakers, one of our first climate champions in episode three. We're here to talk about Sophie's new book, Designing for the Climate Emergency, a guide for architecture students, co-authored with three fellow academics, one based in Sheffield and two in Aarhus, Denmark. As part of this podcast, we're giving away three copies of the book. To enter the prize draw, please email me before the end of October at hattie.hartman at emap.com with your name, address, and affiliation. That's hattie.hartman at emap.com. This book is an ambitious and rigorous collaboration, and I dare say a book we've all been waiting for. It's kind of a back-to-basics guide aimed at students, but equally informative for educators and practitioners. One of the best things about this book is its holistic approach to the topic. I've been absolutely bombarded for years with press releases, which call a building sustainable because it has one or two or even a handful of sustainable features, even though it completely ignores other issues. This book sets the issues out clearly so that you can see where a project excels and where it may be less strong. Throughout the book, the themes are cross-referenced to the UN Sustainable Development Goals and the RIBA 2030 metrics, almost exhaustively so. This is a book to keep by your desk and dip in and out of. I promise it will be dog-eared very soon. Sophie is speaking to us from Tampere, Finland, where she has been based for three years. In this episode, Sophie frequently references the Arc for Change project, a digital resource currently in development, which will sit alongside the book. Sophie, it's great to have you back with us today. Can you tell us how the idea for this book came about? Oh, uh, we have to go back now, I think almost actually three years as well. So we were working, realizing that... We needed to really build on the skills of both uh, students and, and teachers. The idea would be that instead of bombarding students with now is everything about green roofs or about um, timber or about U-values, 
it would be more holistic, first of all, but also it would really just try to give the information as and when students need it in their project. So when you go and visit a site and you have to decide, are you going to, what kind of building are you going to build? Where are you going to build? Are you building at all? So that it would actually really take the student through that process. And I must say, it was actually one of the hardest things to write because of that, because we tend to think of a topic very comprehensively and sort of really splitting the design process meant that we continuously had to sort of look through the student's eyes as a teacher of what would the student want to know now? At what, what level would they now be really sort of like going, OK, that's too much information? Yeah, so that's actually where the, where the book started from. But since and also related to this Arc for Change project, the book will actually be supported in the next six months with all of this digital material, so pre-recorded lectures, uh, exercises, tasks, and also teacher training toolkit uh, as well. So where is all that going to be found? So that will be found on um, arcforchange.com. So at the moment, there's a holding website up there, but there's loads happening behind the scenes. And uh, we're creating that content now as we speak. So one of the things we've realized is that when students not only are bombarded with all this knowledge and information, because there's no shortage of information, we need to really tackle the underlying values of how students, because then students know how to use the information. Maybe the best comparison I can make is that when we often talk about uh, sustainable development, we tend to think of it, okay, let's just replace the fossil fuels with clean fuels. Let's replace the fossil fueled cars with electric cars. But actually, we need to fundamentally radically shift how we design cities, how we move around cities. So it's actually reducing energy use to begin with, but even asking questions, do we even demolish buildings and do we need to build new buildings? Can we share more resources? Can we share buildings and spaces more? Really thinking of new models uh, in the same way that instead of replacing all current cars with electric cars, can we move around the city in different ways and not have all these cars? And I think it, that's sort of what I mean with the underlying values that often in architecture, we think we can engineer our way out and design our way out of the system. And what we realize is that actually for students to be able to make the right decisions about the building, the technologies, the all the like sort of technical stuff, uh, you know, material and physical stuff that a building is made out of or any intervention is made out of, we actually need to really first tackle the underlying values. And those values, ultimately, we've inherited going way back to modernist times, even before then, that are based on extraction, on exploitation of land, resources, people. And so we try to also tackle that in the book by uh, asking students questions and nudging them in the right direction, what they think about, do you really need to build, before we actually then give them the advice on, okay, how to then build. So it's it really trying to shift those values so that they, in a way that they can think more critically and ask questions themselves before they then make decisions about it. And that sort of is in a way also very hopeful because if you think about the fact that each single architecture project has a negative impact on the environment, ecosystems, communities, locally and globally, thousands of miles away, that we pollute, each single architecture project pollutes the air, the land, the soil. It's pretty depressing the impact we have as part of creating these projects as architects. But for me, what's really hopeful and um, empowering about this knowledge is that we don't depend on others to create a positive impact. So if each project instead becomes restorative and can shift its values, then actually we have a massive system change. 
And that to me is very empowering and very hopeful as well. And so we're working more and more now on values, basically to shift in values so that students know and teachers know how to make decisions. It's in a way even overthrowing, if you like, in inverted commas, our traditions, our culture, and also our intersubjective judgment of what good architecture is or what the role of the architect is or the role of architecture is in society. If we don't build, then what does architecture mean? What does it mean us as architects? So they're big questions, but they're really important questions to ask. In, in our last episode, Scott was saying exactly the same thing. He was saying, you know, if you're given a brief for a project for a new build, you should be looking within a 50 kilometer radius. What's out there? Is there an existing building that would fulfill the client's brief? Yeah, and also very much, I think, architecture has been very long regarded as building, designing something physical, a physical artifact. When we talk about designing in the climate emergency, that shifts massively. Is it really a physical artifact? Is it really a physical intervention? Or is it actually supporting a community to share spaces instead? Supporting policymakers to figure out, actually, do we already have facilities that can change? So it's actually starting to show the climate emergency that actually every single architecture intervention is a political act. And we've been denying it is. As soon as we build and decide where we build, we're making a political uh, statement. It's down to who pays for it, to who uses the building, to the effect it has on the neighbourhood. And I think the climate emergency is making that really very visible. But I, as I said, I do find that exciting at the same time. And there's loads of opportunity to empower us as architects. Because can you imagine that we're in a climate emergency and that we're told or that we know that architecture actually cannot do anything about it and we're relying on everybody else to fix it. We actually are the problem, but therefore also the solution. And for me, that is incredibly empowering because we actually almost, I mean, we have all the information out there already, pretty much. We know how to handle the you know, climate emergency. It's just that we don't necessarily have the values to make those decisions yet. We still think it's an opt-in. We still are making decisions that are from a different era and from a different time. So I think if we can shift that, we, we have an amazing momentum. I have to believe that because this one gets me out of bed every day. So was this a subject of discussion between you and your co-authors or were you on the same page from the get-go? It was definitely, I think, an awareness among all of us that giving more information just on its own isn't enough. How do we empower students to make the right decisions? And I think it's become, even throughout the writing process, to us more and more clear as well. And I think it's especially when we meet with our students. And I often notice that actually we're not even asking the right questions. So students will want to know, for example, what is the most sustainable material? And they think that it applies anywhere in the world or on, on every project, it's the same. And then you realize that we didn't give students the framework to make those decisions. We need to give them the framework and the values that they can figure out for themselves to make that judgment when it is the best decision or not. And at the moment, a lot of our focus in architecture schools and in including our own school as well, is very much about more knowledge, more about sustainability, as if we're short of knowledge. And what I've realized is it's not been the shortage of knowledge, it's actually people don't know how to make the decisions, what to do with it. And so we need to actually upskill our teachers and our students in that critical thinking, in that, in a way, empowering as well in those values, in that value and systemic kind of shift.
So how did you team up as a group of four authors and then a, a network of a wider network of collaborators for the Arch for Change? I'd worked with Aidan Hoggard in Sheffield before and I knew what he could bring to the table, a kind of knowledge and few. And then I also had worked in Denmark with the other two colleagues. When the Reba then approached me, I was like, I don't want to do a book on my own. Uh, it would be not only too hard, but also I felt like I needed people with different skill set and I wanted to have that discussion. And for example, I found it, I, I possibly found it the hardest to write related to the design process. But then Liz Donovan, the second author, she was very, very good at it. So we followed her lead and the voice of the book is actually very much her doing as well. We've got like 200 case studies. We have something like 50 checklists asking a student, prompting questions when they're working at a different stage. One of the other things that we're now test running a lot in our own teaching, it's uh, not just about values of the core content of what we teach, but when we're actually trying to create system change and really getting students to challenge the values, which is uncomfortable, it's going outside our comfort zone. This is our identity as architects and we're questioning, is architecture building? then one of the ways to teach it is not the typical traditional ways that we've been teaching architecture. It's not top-down, master-apprentice, lecture-based. It's actually much more inclusive, democratic, low-hierarchy, discussion, peer-to-peer-based. So the book sets out 10 themes which are presented across five design stages corresponding to RIBA work stages, as you mentioned. So did you hone in on that as a structure fairly quickly? Because it, I think it really works well. I mean, you say this, the challenge was to figure out how much to put in and how much information do students need at each step of the way. I can really see that because there is a massive amount of information in this book, but it is very well structured, so you can take it in bits. Yeah, well, we originally actually had a much closer mapping to the RIBA work stages. And then we realized that there are stages of it that you just don't get to as a student. It was very contrived trying to do it. So then we found another way around, really evidence-based. The students have to make decisions based on knowledge. And then sort of from that, kind of actions come from that. And then the, the testing of that and, and feedback are related to that. So that's how we structured it. And then we realized that to create this holistic overview, it's exactly what you said, Hattie, in the beginning, that, you know, we often have architects who say, oh, look, our project's so sustainable. And then it does amazing things for the community or it does amazing things in terms of energy and CO2, but then it often doesn't combine them. And we then sort of thought of it that if we can structure it along these themes, then we also hopefully bring home that... A year one student doesn't have to know all the 10 themes. The idea is that at the end of the five years of study is progressive learning, that a student understands all the 10 themes and can, in architecture practice, then use all of the 10 and understands that it's actually all interconnected. So the book is authoritative and wide-ranging in its scope. Sometimes when people are writing guides to sustainability, their personal preferences for particular materials or particular aesthetics, for example, or for a self-sufficiency approach, they get kind of written up as gospel. So how do you keep it objective? Yeah, we also actually had a, a student uh, advisory board. And one of, the, one of the things that came out of that was they really wanted to see case studies and little thumbnail pictures. And you'll see in the book, we don't have any of that, but we do have 200 cases listed. And the reason why uh, is also about this objectivity is that we struggled to find cases that we thought were exemplary for all of the themes, 
But then the way we thought about it is that they should be exemplary for one, at least the one theme where we list them. We really tried to then also make sure that we had cases from different parts of the world and from also different uh, genders. Why we don't have the images, it's to do with copyright and the fact that we couldn't go and travel, it was COVID, or ask other people to go and take pictures. But it in a way wasn't also deliberate. We didn't want to give a certain idea of what sustainable architecture looks like, because there is no certain architectural language. It's very contextual, very situated. That's really interesting, though, that there are no images. I was looking for them, and I realized they weren't there, but I hadn't articulated to myself that it was a deliberate, okay, maybe it was partially driven by not being able to travel and photograph them and get all the copyrights, but I think it, it works. Yeah. Oh, that's good to hear. I, I suppose that could sort of, they're, by, they're not being photographs of buildings, that could sort of remove a barrier to tutors who might not be kind of super keen on particular aesthetics of, of architecture, that if, if it's presented without this, it's like anything can be yeah, imagine, right? Because it can be both ways. It can be really shifting you in, in a kind of style that doesn't seem very sustainable and it's almost perpetuating the same energy guzzling kind of glass buildings. Or equally, it could be that it's very hairy and quite off-putting to many people. So it can be positive in both ways. And on our Arc for Change project, we will actually put these cases in per theme and we will have links to it as well. So then it'd be very easy to link the two, the book, we also had a kind of quiet strategy whereby we had a rule that we tried to have no more than basically 50% of the cases should be from women and or other parts that were not Europe. And we did find it quite challenging, particularly on energy and CO2. Most of what you get is very Eurocentric or like, you know, from kind of developed countries. And a lot of it is then by male-led architecture practices. But overall, we balanced it out actually quite well. And we discovered some very interesting case studies through our research trying to do this. Of course, it's still limited the case studies by what is available in the language we can speak and by what is actually available online or in other publications, which does mean there's probably a lot of case studies around the world we did not include because we don't know they exist because we couldn't get access to them. So, Sophie, what are your aspirations for this book? How do you think it should be used? How should it be used? I hope that it will be used as a, a book that students use along with their teachers in studio. So that it's really like part of the design project and integrated. Students can, of course, use it also alone as well. But they might find it harder to sort of decide like, okay, but what, what theme do I select? Um, and so we're using it at the moment. All of us authors are using it. Uh, for example, I give a, two workshops next week. One is in year five, one is in year three, whereby we ask students to pick one of the 10 themes they want to major on, that they really want to choose. Sometimes we tell them you have to pick this one because it's a key one at level five, but what is one other theme that they want to pick? And then they start to see the connections between it. And then they create their architecture vision that way, not just sustainability, but it's part of their architecture project. It seems to me that it's just as useful for teaching as it is for the, for students, although you've called it a guide for students. Yeah. And actually, some architects have already told me that it would be very helpful and useful for them as well. I absolutely think so. Which it wasn't the intention, as I said, but uh, yeah, uh, that's what some, some feedback has been as well. George, what's your take uh, since you're working with this day in and day out? Well, 
Um, no, it's really useful to have such a kind of comprehensive resource that, that kind of concentrates things in such a kind of clearly presented way. I think, I think, yeah, as a, as a practitioner, that kind of best practice is kind of evolving and there's, there's so many different kind of things to be, to be thinking about. The breadth of kind of issues that sustainability touches, like something that you, that you said in our, in our third episode that really stuck with me was that sustainable architecture needs to be architecture on steroids. It, it needs to do everything. Yeah, having kind of good references to uh, kind of organise the way through is, is really helpful. In a way, the 10 themes are somehow not in an, in an order of uh, importance, but we did regard them more from the global, like the future and global responsibility to then sort of infrastructure, environment infrastructure, to then more building scale and then sort of the people, community, well-being and then back to sort of performance in the way that we thought sort of from macro to more micro scale would work. But also we did deliberately put the future and global responsibility first as a big value to sort of say, hey, every single architecture project has a negative impact and that must stop. And we can't go into the architecture studio and just sort of leave our global responsibility behind us. You know, we might make decisions in our personal life of uh, only buying secondhand clothing, not flying. And then we go into an architecture practice and we still, we don't ask questions about really concrete or that's just the way it is. We just do it, you know, and we don't bring our own values into the practice and into architecture. And we wanted to really, at the starting point, bring that out, that actually this is utterly fundamental as architects. We need to bring our own values into our architecture. And our glo- like we are global citizens, you know, we are a global citizen. It's really important we bring that into our decision making and not pretend we're not global citizens or not political. So that was very deliberate. We also quite deliberately put the whole circle economy, you know, adaptability design for disassembly also in that first component, like first theme rather, because it's also, you have to very early on make the decisions about this, but also it's so important because it shifts again the values of are you building at all? And if you are, what kind of building is it? How adaptable is it? How long will it last? And so on. Yeah, so they were very conscious decisions sort of related also with these values that we, that we were after. So one one last question. Now that the book is out, what's next on your agenda? So well, next is really now creating for Arc for Change these this digital content that supports the book that will hopefully and then also the teacher training toolkit for then the educators. It does always feel a bit frustrating because it's sort of not going to be available for another six months, more or less. Um, our project finishes in, in 11 months time and it feels like this was needed 10 years ago. To avoid the situation we're in, so I always feel like nothing is kind of fast enough. So Arc for Change will be all open source? Yeah, all open source. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Fantastic. Well, thank you very much. It's really interesting to hear sort of the thinking that went into this book. Our second guest today is structural engineer and educator Kiran Malik, who has been technical studies coordinator at both Central St. Martins and the Architectural Association since 2016 and at Kingston School of Art for the last three years. He's recently taught across seven UK schools of architecture, so he's well placed to discuss this topic. After six years working as an engineer, Kieran returned to academia because he wanted to upskill on design for climate change. He calls himself a carbon researcher and regenerative practitioner, and he's active in ACAN, 
Leti, and the Whole Life Carbon Network. As part of his research, he's developed a series of excellent and very clear diagrams which illustrate various sustainability conundrums. We'll put a link in the show notes. Kieran, welcome to Climate Champions. It's great to have you on the podcast. What's your take on whether architectural education is fit for purpose in these times of extreme weather and planetary crisis? Thank you very much for inviting me. It's 2022. Um, the IPCC report came out in 2018. So we're starting to see the first kind of students who are graduating from schools of architecture and universities, which declared an, a climate emergency. So we really should be seeing a drastic change in the graduates that are graduating. And I think the students have got more interest in this area, but I wouldn't necessarily say that there's that much change. What does a good curriculum look like and what exactly needs to change? I think that if we kind of looked at the end, we'd want students to graduate and we'd want them to be able to design zero carbon buildings and be able to address all of this REBA sustainable outcomes in every single piece of work that they do. I think we've seen a move towards the focus being, to more focus being put on sustainability, but I wouldn't say that it's been enough. Climate change, the change it should have created should be as fundamental a change as if gravity suddenly changed overnight. Um, materials weighed half as much and you could build taller and wider. Um, and I don't think we've seen kind of that dramatic change in architecture just yet. Like it completely means that we, that we need to develop a new form of architecture around the world. It's an opportunity to actually design architecture that lasts. Retrofit is like still a minority in projects, design projects where students are practicing what they're going to be doing for the rest of their careers. They're still demolishing buildings that are fine. They're building in floodplains and not addressing the causes of the flooding. So have you come across some specific examples of the most effective ways to teach this now or particular initiatives that you've seen that could be replicated elsewhere? And I'm really lucky that I'm joining Kingston this year and, and Kingston School of Art has taken a really strong position on this. They, they've appointed a new head of architecture who's a passive house designer, Dr. Heber Elshkrawari. One of the first things that she does when she comes in is she delivers a, a lecture series on passive design. And then she runs the school, the department's first summer school on net zero carbon design. And that was a really interesting project to work on. You left practice as a structural engineer to upskill yourself. Um, what exactly did you do? I left practice because I wanted to improve my knowledge about sustainable design and what that meant in response to climate emergency. And I kind of wanted, needed some space to be able to think about that and explore that. And so I thought I would return to kind of teaching. But... My, the kind of teaching side of me kept being frustrated at just how impenetrable this information was. So I was like, I need, if I'm going to bring people along with me on this journey, then I need to have clear ways of communicating this to people so we can discuss it. And that's kind of one of the reasons why I started doing the diagrams that I've been sharing online. What about upskilling tutors? Some people who study at a school stay there as tutors for years and teaching can easily become incestuous and it's, it's really hard to change established patterns and update the curriculum. So, yeah, how, how could design tutors be upskilled, do you think? I think tutors try their best, but I think we all need to improve our knowledge. Only once you kind of understand and build an intu intuition for some of these ideas can you start to really experiment with them like work out when you can interchange materials or learn, understand that if you want to use a particular material that it might change your particular geometry. And that comes from 
understanding something and then being able to experiment with it with that intuition. And so I think that's, that's everyone, that's architects in practice, that's teachers, that's tutors, that includes external examiners who come in and look at particular courses, and that includes um, Reba as they're developing these criteria, like they, we all should be developing our knowledge in this area. So you recently taught a carbon course in the summer school at the AA. Why were students signing up for this? Do they think they're going to get a job out of this, or this is just they think they need to upskill? What has been interesting is that architecture practices are seeing knowledge about U-values, about whole life carbon, as increasingly more important and an important differentiator between candidates. We're now seeing so many job adverts go out for people with this kind of knowledge, and so we should be teaching it in schools. You mentioned to me that you asked your students to use the RIBA Outcome Guide to assess their design schemes. How does that play out in practice? Has that been a game changer? Like I made it like a normal thing this year for all of my uh, Central St. Martin students to grade their work against the REBA Sustainable Outcomes. And in some of the projects that we do at the Architecture Association. I think for some, I think it's led to them kind of seeing this kind of at the end of the project, they're seeing it and they're seeing ways that they could improve. And I think that's great. And I think other students see it much, like consider it much earlier. And I think they've really flown with it. It's led to some really exciting changes in the way that they've been thinking. So it's not about just following road sizes on windows or particular build-ups. It's understanding that, you, that there's a combination of things that you need to achieve. And then there's a combination of things that you can adjust. You can use different wall types, thicknesses, heights, different ventilation strategies. And so once you have that understanding, then it leads to really exciting work from the students. When they have to suddenly achieve these things at the end, they become like a, a tacked on and it's never really as effective as it could have been. But when they kind of can experiment and they know what they're trying to achieve, it's beautiful. That could be sort of an idea that if you've kind of ticked all the boxes, that means it's sustainable, but maybe the whole building shouldn't have been built in the first place. The idea of not building or using what's already there seems to terrify people. But I think it's a useful tool uh, at designers' disposals. So you look beyond the red line boundary of your site and you think more strategically in, you know, into how it fits into a larger context, both environmentally and, and socially. I mean, that makes total sense. And so understanding that kind of the impact of your project to its surroundings is a really important part of truly regenerative architecture. I, I want to come back to how, how this is taught. And one thing that characterizes so many schools is fractional teaching posts. How does that play into this? If, I mean, it, of course, you know, many posts in architecture schools today are part-time and it's great resource to have practicing architects teaching students. But how does that impact having a strong, sustainable design curriculum that's taught across a course? Having people who are on fractional contracts or on temporary contracts who are only in there a day a week, who have limited time to, to, to do preparation, who have limited time to do research in order to inform the way they're designed, means that there's a limit to the kind of impact that their teaching can have. So 
you teach technical studies rather than studio, so you're maybe a bit removed from this issue. But the recent report on bullying at the Bartlett has shone a light on the way that design can be taught in some architecture schools. Does a focus on sustainability and the real-world impacts buildings have offer a way to reframe the teaching of architecture and, and move away from just about it being about protecting the prestige of the tutors? I think that's a big issue. Although I like, I think teaching of sustainability and regenerative design is really important, I don't think it's going to solve every problem. I think that there are other things that could change parts of this. So, for example, more, more lecturers and teachers actually being qualified teachers. I have my PGCE, my secondary and primary school teaching qualification. Uh, I also have my, senior, my HEA senior fellowship, which is my, like a similar kind of thing for universities. And as part of that, there are issues of understanding your relationship with students, understanding how you teach, good ways of teaching, setting up a curriculum. And so, again, like if more staff had those kind of qualifications, we might see changes to the way that these courses run. Because it's, it's just sort of assumed that if you can do architecture, you can teach architecture. Um, but that's a different thing, really, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, I, I have the same thing when I'm, high, when, I'm trying to, when I'm looking for people to join technical studies courses. I'm looking for people who understand technical studies, who are able to teach it and are willing to teach it. And that, like, that Venn diagram is tiny. <laughs> so supporting tutors like, in their development to become better teachers, I think, is a, really, is a, like, a necessary part of uh, the education that we're providing. So finally, before we close, I wanted to ask you why you call yourself a regenerative practitioner. We recently interviewed Hanif Kara of AKT2, and he was skeptical that regenerative design is just another buzzword. So what does it mean to you? I think that in some situations, people are just seeing it as sustainability turned up to 11, and they see it as a progression of green design, which is going to be like, has now become a, quite of a, like, a, like a fake thing, greenwashing. And I think one of the reasons why everyone's having difficulty with it is because it requires a new way of thinking. You can't just take the old models, you can't take the old checklists and add slightly more detail to them or more criteria to them. And it requires ways of thinking about the past of your project and the future of your project, thinking about the boundaries of your project and how it impacts other projects around it, how those projects are going to evolve over time. It requires a, like a much deeper understanding of what a place is and what it wants to be. Having this much more holistic, like encompassing like much wider issues of social cohesion, social history, water, agriculture, like local industry, and by in, like involving us together and seeing what could evolve out of this, the, the solutions, the examples that come out of it are so rich and are so exciting. You can't help but want to do more of it. Is there anything we've missed out, Kieran? One of the things I would like to add would be that there's so much to read and knowing what to read and what to look at can be really daunting. That's definitely the experience I had when I started to look at this. So I think for anyone who's looking for a minimum read, like I think the minimum that anyone should read would be like 101 Rules of Thumb for Low Energy Architecture by Hugh Hayward and 101 Rules of Thumb for Sustainable Buildings by Hugh Hayward. They're they're so short that you could read the both books in 30 minutes and I think it would it would change you. I think Tudors should be definitely looking at the Letty one pages, the circular economy one, their whole life carbon one, their embodied carbon one, then it's zero carbon one. 
And I think if anyone is interested in regenerative design and kind of want to explore what it, what it is, I'd say there's a really good book by Pamela Mung and Ben Harrod, which is about regenerative development and design, a framework for evolving sustainability. And um, they've got some amazing, they, they talk through it, they show amazing examples of how it, how it works. Great. Thank you very much, Karen. In our next few episodes, we'll be speaking to several guests to unpick the conundrum of the drive to net zero in heritage buildings. We'll be looking in detail at conservation area guidance and at a heritage project that is pushing best practice. You can find the show notes for this episode at www.architectsjournal.co.uk forward slash podcasts, where you can also catch up with all our previous episodes. If you're enjoying Climate Champions, please subscribe and do rate us on your favorite podcast platform. It helps people find us. Thanks. Thanks.